John chapter number one tonight. We're still in the book of John. We're going to be moving through our series in the book of John. And church, if I haven't said it already, I am excited about the book of John. The Lord's already given me about the first 18 messages um, over the last few weeks. And <clears throat> just to watch uh, an awesome book come to life all over again has just got me excited. I was telling Brother Brett back there in the media room before service, I said, uh, it's one of the only books in our Bible uh, that God told the author, hey, write this down so they know Jesus is God. Uh, many of the other books that are written are written to give us great truths and great foundational doctrines and great things like that. But the Gospel of John was written for the sole purpose of showing us that Jesus is God. So how big a book, how magnificent of a book it must be. Last week we looked at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We looked at the beginning of all things, and we looked at from the beginning that Jesus came, that Jesus saw, uh, and that Jesus gave everything that He had. John summarized the whole mission and purpose of the life of Christ right there in the first half of chapter number 1. And back when we were in the book of Acts, we were simply doing one message uh, per chapter. There is no way I can let that slip and do that in the book of John. We might have three and four messages in a chapter, uh, and then sometimes we might have one message in a chapter, but we're definitely going to slow down a bit in the book of John. So we're going to, our text verse tonight is going to be John chapter number one and verse 29. Just stand when you find it. John chapter number one and verse 29. John chapter number one. In verse 29, the Bible says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Last week we looked at the message, the beginning. This week we're looking at the message, the baptism. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your church. Thank you so much for the people that are willing to come to church on a Sunday night, God, and just get that extra filling, get that extra fuel from your word, Father, to make it up until Wednesday. Lord, God, I pray that you bless each and every family represented here for the ones that wish they could be here but uh, cannot be here for whatever the reason tonight. I pray that you a special blessing on them, that you help them, that you give them peace, that you have church with them right there where they're at. God, help them to feel your presence wherever it is they are tonight. And God, for all those that are shut in and afflicted during this pandemic, God, I pray a special blessing on them that you touch them, you comfort them during these times, you help them to have uh, joy and you help them to have courage and you help them to have boldness to enter your throne room, God, right there in their living rooms. God, I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of John, chapter number one. Our text first came from verse 29, but we'll do some backing up by way of introduction. And uh, I want to make one clarification, and this is just one of my pet peeves because it really greatly affected me as a young man, as a child. If, if I haven't told you already, my great-grandfather was a preacher, and that's who I grew up under. Any message I heard preached, any, uh, any, any sort of uh, biblical knowledge I gained was from directly from his teaching, whether it was directly from him or his teaching to my father, then my father's teaching to me, or his teaching to my mother, and my mother's teaching to me. But uh, I, I missed something in communication. And as a young kid, I did not understand the difference of John the Baptist and the disciple John who was writing the book of John. 
And for the longest, I, as a young person, I, I could not quite figure out how he wrote the second half of the book and the book of Revelation after he got his head chopped off about the six, six or seven chapters. So, and it just, it could not, I could not fathom what was happening there and I couldn't figure it out. And for the longest time, it was a stumbling block until somebody hit me with this great theological truth that, hey, dummy, sometimes there's more than one person with the same name, you know, and it, and it just never clicked. All right, it never clicked. As a uh, preacher said this morning, there was more than one James, there's more than one John, there's more than one Peter, there's more than one Simon, more than one Andrew. Uh, and we have to keep that in mind as we're reading God's Word, and that's where study comes in. So understanding that the John the disciple begins to tell about John the Baptist here in our text. So these are two uh, distinct uh, people, and I wanted to make sure to clarify that because it could save, if some of you out there are like me, young people, I just saved you about six years of confusion, all right, because I was confused as I'll get out for a long time. Um, but tonight, John the disciple begins to tell us and begins to lead into the life of John the Baptist, and uh, John the Baptist was another one that had me confused, and I wondered why he was called John the Baptist, and then I got up into high school, and I learned about the Protestant Reformation, and about how uh, uh, Martin Luther got a hold of a copy of the Book of Romans, and, and things began to move and shake, and they broke away from the Church of England, and that's how you got the Protestant Reformation, and all these different things, and you ended up with uh, Methodists, and uh, Presbyterians and Baptists, and I said, well, if, if, if Baptist, you know, came around after that, then how, how in the world was John called the Baptist? Well, I, I got another revelation that he was not called John the Baptist because he liked fried chicken, all right? He was not called John the Baptist because uh, he had a sign outside of his house that said, John's Baptist church, all right? Uh, he was not called the Baptist because of a, a name or a doctrine or this, that, or that. He was called John the Baptist because he baptized the Jewish people, because he simply exercised and cried out, behold, the way of the Lord makes straight the way of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he began to baptize these Jews and began to baptize them under repentance of their sins and baptize them to start walking in righteousness. And we know that what he was doing was simply symbolic of what Christ would do when he got here. And there was no uh, spiritual baptism taking place, but it was a physical baptism and it was a picture of what was to come. So uh, first thing we want to see tonight is they clear distinction. Look at verse number 19. And this, the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed and said, I am not the Christ. Made it pretty clear, didn't he? All right. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are thou the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they say unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And that would have been in Isaiah chapter number 40 and verse number 3 through 5. If you want to go back there and read it, we won't for the sake of time tonight. But he immediately moved on to start fulfilling prophecies. John the disciple, when he uh, began to write these things, he immediately moved on from uh, the pre-creation beginning of Christ. And then he immediately moved on to the, the fulfillment of prophecies. And he dives into John the Baptist here and he dives into a conversation uh, that the priests back at Jerusalem uh, from the Jews and the Levites sent messengers and they said, who are you that's baptizing and all these people? Are you Elisha? You know, are you a great prophet? Are you this person? Are you that person? And he simply 
made it very clear. He made a clear distinction. I am not, a little more down. I am not the Christ. John the Baptist never claimed to be anything more than a man. He never claimed to be anything uh, supernatural, anything superscriptural. It's so, so important because there's people out there that will get it twisted and start worshiping this man and start worshiping the things that he did and start taking the things that he was doing and making them supernatural things. John the Baptist made it very, very clear that he was simply a messenger of God, a forerunner to the Messiah that was prophesied by Isaiah that would be the one of a voice crying in the wilderness. And uh, John the Baptist made that clear distinction. No, that was followed by a confused discourse. Look at verse number 24. And they which were sent of the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, Why baptize thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither, thy pro neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you, whom ye know not. He it is who... Coming, he, excuse me, he it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. Notice the confusion here by the Pharisees. They said, if you're not a prophet, if you're not the Christ, why are you doing the things that you're doing? You see, what these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these Levites couldn't understand was John was not gaining anything from what he was doing. He wasn't charging $5 a head to dunk them under the river. He wasn't charging $20 uh, to remit their sins for them or to you know, plead their case before God. He wasn't manipulating the truth of the gospel like the Pharisees were and the Sadducees were. He wasn't doing anything religious. He wasn't doing anything uh, super spiritual. He was simply providing a way for the people of Israel, for the Jews to come and pledge their sincerity and righteousness towards the coming kingdom, to get their lives right, to turn over a new leaf per se, and get their mind and their conscience right before God because they believed the words of John the Baptist and they believed that the Messiah was soon coming and that they were going to get their business handled and that baptism signified that. But the Pharisees couldn't quite understand that. Why? Because John the Baptist wasn't gaining anything. He wasn't charging anything. He wasn't profiting anything. And they could not quite understand why he was doing the things he was doing. So he made a concise declaration in verses 26 and 27. He said, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. He said, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. Friends, I am not worthy to untie his shoes. That's such a deep meaning there in this culture and in this age. You had your servants. You had your indentured servants. You had the people that served you. The, the people of wealth and the people of stature who could have had dozens if not hundreds of servants. But it was the job of the lowest of the lowest of the low to untie the master's shoes. It was the job of the, uh, the most wretched, the most looked down upon, the most frowned upon servant, the lowest man, the new guy, whatever you want to call him, uh, the bottom of the totem pole, the, the lowest of the low. It was been his job when the master got home from being in the mercantile or when the master got home from going and enjoying the splendors of the city and he kicked his feet up on that uh, threshold or he kicked his feet up on that table, it would have been the lowest of the low of the hierarchy of the servants that would have had to have come and untied the shoes. John says, I'm not even worthy to be that guy. 
I'm not even worthy to be the smallest, most mediocre, most little bitty servant in the house compared to the one that's coming. Do you realize how big that is? I remember as a child, and this was one of those, how many know what a fad is? F-A-D, a fad. Comes through, okay, bell bottoms, all right, that's kind of kicking off a little bit here. Pet rocks, you know, things like that. Uh, there's crazy kids around now that are eating Tide Pods on YouTube, but uh, there was once a generation who kept a rock in a cage and called it their pet, okay? So we got to balance the scales out a little bit here now. So uh, I'm not throwing too many stones tonight, I hope, but uh, there was once a fad of these sandals. And I remember a clear as day, and they were leather Sandals and they kind of look like a, uh, a wicker basket kind of weave material, okay? And if you still own a pair of these and wear a pair of these, I'm not making fun of you, okay? There's a farther, a deeper meaning to this story. But they were these leather sandals that were woven together, and it just seemed like every man and every boy had to have a pair of these sandals at one point in time. And I remember that there was an elephant in the room with these sandals because how many of you know what happens when a man with big old hairy nasty sweaty feet wears leather sandals what happens to those sandals and his feet they stank s-t-a-n-k stank that's greek brother dan they stank all right. And I will never, ever forget. My mom thought those sandals were the cutest thing because it was the, it was the fad. Everybody's husband had to have these sandals and everybody's kids. Some of you still don't know what I'm talking about. I promise you they were real. OK, um, who would wear these? They were real. They were out there. Um, my dad had a pair. Me and my brother had a pair. And it was always <laughs> the, the, the three siblings, me, my sister, and my little brother, when it was time to clean up the house before bedtime. There are those sandals that would be, that would belong to my father. They'd be there on the threshold, all right? And it was always the lowest on the totem pole. It was always the one who lost the bet. It was always the one who owed the other one a favor, who was being blackmailed by their middle sister or whatever. It was always their job that had to go get the sandals and carry them and take them back outside and put them on the, in the garage. All right, because they were so, so smelly and so, so stanky that nobody wanted to touch them. John said, by comparison, if you were to compare me, Pharisees, if you were to compare me, Levites, messengers, you go tell the people that sent you this. If you are looking at me and thinking I am special, you ain't seen nothing yet. The one that's coming after me, the one that's on his way, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. To be the lowest of the low compared to him. He made a concise Declaration, but lastly, in the introductory points, he made a comp he was at a compelling destination. Look at chapter one, in verse twenty-eight. This is the verse that probably hit me over the head the hardest in this whole passage. You ready? These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Yeah, that's the verse. Let's read it again. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Verse 28 may seem easy to gloss over. Well, they were just giving us the location where Jesus was baptized. They were just giving us the location where John was baptizing. But if you do what me and thousands of millennials all over this world do, and we Google that, we Google, where is this place? Where is this location? You're going to find out that they are, to the best of our knowledge, at the Jordan River, which we all know that. But they're across 
the way on the wilderness side, on the not Israel side, across from a city formerly known as Jericho. All right. And they are at the very location that was wrote about and spoke about in Joshua chapter number three and verse number 15. If you'll turn there with me, Joshua chapter number three and verse number 15. This is where John's standing when he's having this conversation. Joshua chapter number 3 and verse number 15. I want you to understand tonight, they are at the very place where the children of Israel crossed into the promised land. What is so special about this verse 28? They were at Bethabara beyond Jordan where he was baptizing. Look at it again. Uh, they were in Beth. They were in this. If you were to just skim over it, if you were to just read it quickly, they were just there at the river. They were just there in the Jordan River. But if you study this out, and I did to the best of my little uh, 12th grade education ability, this was the very location to the best Bible scholar's knowledge that Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land. So it is huge here that the very location God's chosen people would inhabit their land that was called and set apart for them would be the very location Jesus would begin His public ministry. But it gets better than that. Look at Joshua chapter number 3, verse number 15. And as they that bear the what ark were coming to Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all its banks at the time, <clears throat> all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above, what? Stood and rose up upon an heap very far from the city uh, <clears throat> Adam, that is beside Zeratan, and, the, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed right over, right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on what? Dry ground. In the midst of the Jordan, and the Israelites passed over on what? Until all the people were passed, what? Clean over Jordan. When the law that was in that Ark, when the law came in contact with the Jordan River, when the law came into contact with the waters of this world, they had to stop. They had to become permanently and totally separated from the presence of that law because we know that it was the presence of that law, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of to the law, the giving of thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt have no other gods before me, that these laws were the very things that separated us from a holy and righteous God, that separated the world from a holy and righteous God. And when they were to enter the promised land, those waters that were the gateway, those waters that surrounded it had to halt. They could not occupy the same space. But over in John, chapter number 1, verse 28, or verse 29, we have not the law coming down to the Jordan River, but we have the Lamb coming down to the Jordan River. And when the lamb got down to the Jordan River, the waters didn't have to halt and stand on the side, did they? No, why? Because the lamb was 100% man, 
and 100% God. The very place that the law created separation, the Lamb was about to show that He was about to create and He was about to usher in reconciliation. That no longer did the world, you and me, have to be separated from the holy and righteous God. But there was a Lamb on the scene that was going to bring atonement, that was going to bring reconciliation. And when the Lamb met the waters of that river, not only did they not subside, not only did they not get out of the way, but He plunged under that river, buried in baptism, and came up out of that water clean. Clean. Complete. Ready to embark on that public ministry. So this is a big destination that is taking place here. This is a big location. No doubt John the Baptist could have tripped over one of them 12 stones that the tribes of Israel left as they walked into the promised land. It was right there in that same vicinity. And the waters of that river that had to stand at attention as the law came through were now the same rivers of water that the Lamb purposely plunged Himself underneath. That the Lamb purposely let John baptize Him under and rise Him again to begin the work of reconciliation through His public ministry. So as we see now in verse 29, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb. We see Jesus making His way towards John. Maybe through a crowd of Jews waiting to be baptized. Maybe through nobody at all. Maybe it's just John. The Bible doesn't say. But I, I, I would sincerely look at the context here and see that there was probably a crowd. There was probably a multitudes and multitudes of people. And John looked through them all and he made eye contact with the one. He made eye contact with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he said, Behold the Lamb. And tonight we're looking at the baptism. Why was this so important? Why was Jesus being baptized of John? Why was Jesus coming here to the Jordan River to be plunged under the waters, rose up out again, so critical and so important? And that's what we're going to dive into. That's the meat of the message tonight in John chapter number 1. And the first thing that it did, the baptism, number 1, revealed the Lamb. Verse 29, A, the Lamb's identity. The Lamb's identity. If you'll look back through the first part of chapter number one, we've heard Jesus referred to as the Word. We've heard Jesus referred to as the light. We've heard Jesus referred to as the truth. We've heard Jesus referred to as every single thing but His name. But in here, in verse number 29, look at what the writer changes uh, his tactic to. The next day, John seeth Jesus. John seeth Jesus. He's named here. The Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary, the son of Abba Father and the Virgin Mary is now walking up to the banks of that Jordan River and now he is identified for the first time by man's eyes. By man's eyes, John the Baptist says, there he is. It's Jesus. Behold the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. So why was the baptism so important? Because it revealed the Lamb's Identity, but not only did it do that, but it revealed the Lamb's intention. Look at the second verse, part of that verse. Behold, the Lamb of God, which what? Taketh away the sin of the world. Right here, from the very beginning, John the Baptist saw his intentions. He didn't see that Lamb making his way there towards the river and say, ah, oh, he's coming to bring us prosperity. 
No, he didn't see that lamb coming towards him there in the Jordan River and say, oh, he's coming to deliver us from Roman rule. No, that's not what he saw. No, he's come to give us more uh, prosperity, more, more polarity. He did not come to give us power or praise or political prowess. He came to take our sins away. He came to die on a cross. He came to bear the nails. He came to bear the crown of thorns. He came to bear the sin of the world and cast them as far as the east is from the west. He was made sin who knew no sin that we may be made the righteousness of God and here at the ceremony of His baptism Baptism. From minute one, John says, Behold the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Amen. The Lamb's identity and the Lamb's intentions. Right here in verse number 29. And lastly, the Lamb's initiation. We know in verse number 30, This is He whom I said, After me cometh a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, Therefore am I come baptizing with water. The other account, one of the other accounts of this is in Matthew chapter number three and thirteen, uh, chapter number three, verses thirteen through seventeen, and we know that Jesus came down to John and said, "What you're doing is good. Baptize me. Baptize me." The Lamb's intentions here were to take part in the work that John was doing and to come and to be baptized by John. And we know that in that passage of Scripture, Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, that John argued with him. John said, Lord, you, 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 you should be baptizing me. You're the, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the one who's come to take the sins of the world away. And you're asking me to baptize you? He said, John, what you're doing is good. Baptize me. The Lamb's initiation was done through His baptism. Before He went out for 40 days of temptation, before He did one miracle, the Son of God, God the Son, wanted, desired to be baptized of John. Think about that. Think about the example He was setting forth. Think about the example He was setting forth for you and me. If you say you know Jesus, and you say you've been redeemed and saved of your sins, baptism's the first step. Baptism's always been the first step. And we know that as an ordinance of the church, baptism doesn't wash anything away spiritually. That if we could get in that tub up there and wash our sins off, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come and wouldn't have had to die. If we could do anything of, of man's baptism... Jesus' cross would be made of none effect. But we know that baptism is honored and commanded among, among Scripture to be done in reverence and to be done in obedience and to be done in display of you aligning with yourself with the kingdom of God and being ready to take steps as a believer. Baptism has always been the first step. The Lamb's identity, the Lamb's intention, and the Lamb's initiation. So, why the baptism? Why did He do it? It revealed the Lamb. Number two, it reverenced the Lord. Look at verse number 32. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Look at this here. First we see it reverence the Lord, but not just the Lord, but the Lord's Spirit. We see the Spirit, capital S. Look there in verse number 32 again. And I saw 
the Spirit, capital S. God the Spirit. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. Here we see Him literally manifest, lighting upon Jesus. Why? Because when you are saved scripturally, when you are saved under the dispensation of grace, right here, right now, when you are saved and you are baptized spiritually, when you are washed in the blood, the Spirit immediately comes to live and indwell inside of you. There's no getting saved this Sunday and waiting on the Holy Spirit a few Sundays from now. There's no getting saved this Sunday and when you study enough or you deputize enough or you go knock on enough doors, then you'll get the gift of the Holy Ghost. No, friend, when you call on the name of, the Jesus, name of Jesus and you ask to be saved, right there, right then, you are indwelt with God, the Holy Spirit. Right there and then. And when Jesus was baptized of John, here He came in the likeness of a dove to show us that peaceful transition and indwelling. It reverenced God, the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus have to get baptized? To show us the reverence. Because when we're saved, we're not transitioning through a physical baptism or transitioning through a spiritual baptism. The blood of the cross is washing our sins away. Literally baptizing us by the blood. And in that moment, we receive His Spirit. That is taught and infallible through all of Scripture that at the moment a believer comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that baptism, Jesus, God the Son, one person of the Trinity, is lighted upon by God the Spirit, another person of the Trinity. It reverenced the Lord's Spirit. It reverenced the Lord's Son. Look at verse 32 again. And John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon Him. We know in Matthew's account, again, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, that <clears throat> the audible voice was heard of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Why the baptism? Why did Jesus come and take part in this ceremony? Why? Because it honored and it reverenced who He was. The audible voice of God the Father said, This is Him. Left no doubt, left no more uh, dispute about it. Right here at the beginning of pu Jesus' public ministry, we know for the next three and a half years, many people would come to Jesus and say, who are you and who do you think you are? And what do you mean that you're the Messiah? And what do you mean you're the light of the world? What do you mean you're the way, the truth, and the life? God the Father literally said at the beginning of His ministry, this is my beloved Son. What more proof did they need? What more vindication did they need than God, the Father Himself, saying, this is Him. This is Him. Right here, in the midst of the Jordan River, at the very place that the children of Israel inherited this land, at the very place that the waters subsided and let the Ark of the Covenant pass through, at this very location, this is My Son. No other vindication needed, is there? No other sign of approval needed, is there? But the Lord's Spirit, the Lord's Son, and the Lord's solidarity. Think about this. Brother Dan, I'm young in study, but I think I'm right. It's the only place in Scripture where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are literally present in the same location. Three distinct persons of the Holy Trinity, all three distinctly represented in one singular place. The same Trinity that said, let us make man in our own image. 
Let us, let us, let us. The same holy triune Godhead is right here at this little spot on the river. Is right here on these muddy banks of the Jordan River. Is right here giving the launching pad, giving the foundation for God the Son to begin His public ministry. Imagine what it would be like to go out into a boxing ring and have Mike Tyson in your corner and have Evander Holyfield in your corner. Sure, they'd probably be fussing and fighting behind you. They don't really like each other that much. But to have all these great pound-for-pound great boxers and fighters, Oscar De La Hoya's back there, Manny Pacquiao's back there, Floyd Mayweather back there. If you don't know who any of these people are, they're really good at knocking people unconscious. Amen? Okay. To walk into that boxing ring and know you got all these fellas in your corner and that if things go south, you've got the best of the best, the pound for pound world champions standing and they've got your back at the beginning of the boxing match of the next three and a half years of the Messiah's life, of the Lamb's life. He made it known. God the Father made it known. This is my son, but the Holy Spirit's in his corner and Jehovah Jireh, God the Creator, God the one that spoke this world into existence, he's in his corner. And if you think the devil is going to have a problem with him you're right if you think the Pharisees are going to have a problem with him you're right but God the Spirit and God the Father are in his corner go go why the baptism because it reverenced the Lord I was I'm a boxing fan and I just imagine Jesus coming to the Jordan River reverently of course but with his corner men, the dove, God, the Holy Spirit, and the creator, God, the Father. And he's coming. He's got his gloves on. Think about it. He gets into that Jordan River and he says, John, what you're doing is good. Baptize me. Baptize me, John. But, but Lord, baptize me. He's ready. He's ready. 33 years now, he's remained in obscurity. Or 30 years now, he's remained in obscurity. No one's known his name. No one's known his true intention and his true purpose. But now, it's showtime. It reverenced the Lord. It revealed the Lamb. But lastly, look at 34. It recorded the love. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John summarized the, this whole transaction this whole baptism, as I saw, and I bear record, that this is the Son of God. There's no way that any man would ever do this and do what he's about to do unless he loves you. Unless he really loves the world he's coming to. There's no way Jesus would have been lacing these gloves up, putting these boots on, coming in to this fight coming in to this ministry. There's no reason, John said, besides if he was the son of God, that he, whatever anybody in their right mind would ever do what he's about to do. And the reason is love. Why the baptism? He loved us. Why did he come down and, and, and start his ministry off in this way? He loved us. Loves humility. The God of creation. Think about this. God the son He's letting a human being baptize him. If that's not a lesson in humility, I don't know what is. 
Can you imagine? As a young preacher, I couldn't imagine Reverend Billy Graham coming to me and saying, Brother Bryce, I want to rededicate. Would you baptize me? There's no way. Who am I? I couldn't imagine some of the great heroes of the faith, Charles Spurgeon and all of them, coming to me and saying, would you baptize me? Yet the more, Jesus, God the Son, saying, would you baptize me? The only way you get that kind of humility is love. Because if you truly love the people you're ministering to and ministering with, you'll recognize very quickly that you are nobody. Nobody. Jesus became nobody so that we could be somebody. Jesus became nobody on that cross when God turned his back on him and looked in the opposite direction. And he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus became the greatest nobody this world has ever seen when he took your sins and mine on that cross. If that's not a lesson in humility, I don't know what is. Why the baptism? To show us that God the Son was even willing to put himself at the low point and say, baptize me. Love's hope. The onlookers may not have realized what was happening at that moment, but when he came up out of that water, hope had arrived. All the people that would be healed, all the people 2,020 years later that would still be hearing the message of all the things he was about to do and say and testify of began when he came up out of that river. That very moment was the beginning of hope. And lastly, love's heralding. John said, I saw and bear record. He saw love fulfill prophecy and begin Jesus Christ's public ministry right there with his very human eyeballs. John the disciple who's writing this book, I'm not talking about John the Baptist, John the disciple who's writing this book used first person language and said, I saw and bear record. We know John hadn't been called to be a disciple yet, but he says he was there and he saw it. He didn't even know what he was seeing there at that time. He didn't even know the magnitude of what was taking place, but he said, I saw it with my own two eyes. I saw the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords come to this river and be baptized under his public ministry and begin the work that he was going to work here on earth. I saw it. Have you seen it? As Miss Joy comes. As Miss Joy comes. A lot of times we would say, yes, this is the passage where Jesus got baptized. He got baptized there, the end. There's so many lessons here to learn, church. There's so many lessons here and reminders to be given. As I said at the message last week, the book of John is a book of so much deep truth and so much deep understanding, but it's also a book of the fundamentals. And if we don't grasp the fundamentals of God's humility here and God's willingness to say, baptize me, John. Baptize me, John his intentions and his purpose because on Tuesday church we're facing an election and it would easily be able to feel defeated feel like we have no control feel like 
we don't know what the outcome's going to be and to worry and to doubt. The Bible says worry for nothing, but pray about everything. The Bible says God seats and unseats rulers as He wills. The Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Creator. What's going to come down to us is on Wednesday, whatever the outcome, are we going to remember who Jesus is? Are we going to remember that He came down into the, one of the most politically divided eras of all human history at the age of the Roman Empire? And He didn't come fussing and fighting at Caesar. He didn't come fussing and fighting yelling and hollering about this party and that party. He didn't come yelling and hollering about vote this, vote that. He came down and he said, John, baptize me. Because I'm about to start pointing people back to me. I'm about to start pointing people back to the Father. I'm about to start telling people about the cross. I'm about to start telling people that I've come to take their sins away. And church, I, I pray that as I pray, we close in a good word of prayer and remind ourselves and ask God to give us the grace that on Wednesday, after we've done our civic duty and voted and laid it all out there, on Wednesday we awake and we just renew our spirit to tell others not what we think about Donald Trump, not what we think about Joe Biden, but what we think about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and what we know about God the Son and what we know about Jesus that came there at the Jordan River and what we know about Jesus that came and died on the cross and what we know about the Jesus that moves and directs in our services here of Anchor of Hope that on Wednesday when we wake up, we don't wake up a Democrat, we don't wake up a Republican, we wake up a Christian. As I pray, I hope you'd pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the book of John so much that in these divided times, in these times of turmoil, in these times of uncertainty, God, we know who's still on the throne. God, we know if regardless who's in the White House, we know who's still on the throne. God, we know regardless of what the media says or what the mania says, God, we know what your Bible says. God, I pray that you give your Christians, again, regardless of the outcome, a new fervency, a new heart of revival towards you, God. Let your church shine brighter than ever. Let your church here at Anchor of Hope Baptist Church, right here at 2613 Lakeview Drive, be the church in our area, be the church in our city, shining and, and bringing all honor and glory to you, Father, and be the one that's inviting, be the one that's taking steps towards you and taking steps forward, God, and be the one who's not afraid and who's not timid and who's not worried and who's not woesome about the past and not holding on to the things that are holding us back and holding on to the things that are hurting us and holding on to our emotions and holding on to our feelings about the current climate but God but that is clinging to an unchanging hand that is clinging to the cross of Calvary and standing on the promises of your word God I pray and I ask that you be with your people this week embolden them empower them to be light and salt for you God I ask these things in Jesus name Amen